Today's scripture reading is found in Acts chapter 6, verses 8 through 15. Please turn with me in your Bibles. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians and of the Alexandrians and of those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes. And they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Audrey. Well, again, if you're new, I want to welcome you to the Parks Church. Uh, we are in a study uh, through the book of Acts. This is what we do uh, the majority of time at the Parks is preach through books of the Bible. We love the Word of God here uh, at the Parks Church, and we are making our way through Acts chapter 6. We'll finish that um, today. And if you have your Bibles or maybe those, those handy uh, little uh, study guides, uh, you keep those open, your notes uh, as well. Um, was there anyone uh, when you were growing up, or may- maybe even right now, um, who, who you aspired to be like, right? Is there anybody you wanted to be like? Um, for me, growing up in Missouri in the Midwest, I wanted to be like Mike. And uh, that's Michael Jordan, for those of you who don't know Mike. It was a whole campaigner. Anyway, so that led to me out on the playground um, wearing a, a, an armband with my tongue out, right? And I just wanted to be like Mike. And uh, you can tell that worked out for me, being a kid from Missouri. Um, uh, but but who was it? Uh, maybe even now for us as adults, there are people we... We look up to, we aspire to be like, um, maybe in business or in, 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 in parenting or, or as a husband, as, as, as a wife, or there are people like that. You see, I approach this text here um, in Acts chapter 6, and, and I've read this, Acts chapter 6 and Acts chapter 7, around this man named Stephen so many times, but it's hit me uniquely over the last couple of weeks of, as I've read this. This is not just any, and, and no scripture is ordinary, but, but for me, this, this passage in Acts chapter 6 and what we'll cover next week, all of Acts chapter 7 in, in Stephen's speech is, is unique. And scholars, as they, they write about Stephen, they make uh, one note about how Luke, the writer of Acts, describes Stephen. They say that, that they describe Stephen, Luke describes Stephen, the closest to Jesus Christ in, in, in his qualities as anyone in the New Testament. That when you look at the life of Stephen, and Stephen is only recorded in this passage in chapter 6 and, and in chapter 7, and that's it. That's all we know about Stephen. Right? But what we know about Stephen is that he mirrored Jesus. And so when I talk about who do you want to be like, when I talk about who do you want to imitate for a disciple of Jesus Christ, right? Like we spent our whole last month looking at discipleship, this process of discipleship. The heart behind discipleship is this, that you and I would be imitators of Christ. That there would be one who we would want to be like, 
There would be one that we would want to imitate in his name is Jesus. And so when we peer into Acts chapter 6, verses, verses 8 through 15, what we see from Stephen is a man who mirrored Christ, a man whose qualities or marks, if you will, they were the image of Christ. They embodied what Christ embodied. Stephen's life points to Jesus who perfectly embodies these things. But we're looking at a disciple, Stephen, who has these marks that even as I run my, my life through these, these filters of the marks of Stephen, do, do I see these qualities in me as someone who, who loves Jesus, as a disciple of, of Christ? Do I really look like him? Do I really, do I really embody these things that my Savior does? So I, I just want to simply to walk through um, this morning the five marks in Stephen's life that Luke lays out and ask ourselves and ask the Holy Spirit to examine us. And say, if these marks are true of, of Stephen, and they're true of Stephen because they're true of Jesus and perfectly embodied in him, are they true of us? Right? Because the context in which Acts 6 falls, and Audrey just read it, is that Stephen, and we'll read this a little bit in, in, in a second, Stephen was appointed by the apostles. And he was doing, doing these incredible works and it says signs and miracles and wonders, but a group rises up against him. In fact, many groups rise up against him. And they listed them in Acts chapter 6. And, and they bring him with a false indictment before these councils. And so the, the context of Acts chapter 6 is that Stephen is standing in the middle of these men. Who have indicted him falsely of blasphemy against Moses and the law and also against God. The, the sentence for that charge. Hear me. The sentence for that charge that they're indicting falsely Stephen of is this. Death. And so they are their councils and what I call the, these wolves of men standing around this man of God with stones in their hands ready to kill him based upon a lie and a false indictment. And Stephen is standing, this disciple, this Christ follower is standing in the middle. And I don't think I'm ruining this story for anybody, but Stephen becomes the first martyr. He dies. He becomes the first martyr of the church. The trajectory of the church, the early church, after this moment in Acts chapter 7, is changed forever. The church scatters, you can see it, just like Jesus said it would in Acts chapter 8, after the death of Stephen. But he stands in the middle of these wolves. And next week, we're going we're gonna to cover the entire sermon of Stephen. We're going to cover his entire discourse of what he lays out to these men who are indicting him falsely. The gospel witness that he gives. It's this powerful thing. I thought about splitting it up and I was like, no, we've got to take it all because I want us to hear it all in one voice of Stephen. But there's something interesting that Luke does before. Before getting to this gospel witness, before laying out what Stephen says, he actually points to the character of Stephen. That's what these marks are. He points to who this disciple really is before Stephen ever opens his mouth. He goes, this is the kind of man he was. These are the kind of inner qualities that, that flowed out from him to be able to stand in the middle of these wolves and go, listen, I know a death sentence is coming. Like, what? Honestly, as a speaker, as, as a teacher, like this is one of those, like for me, like those Mount Everest moments where you just stand at the base and you look up and you go, I, I don't know that I can even grasp what's taking place here. We're probably hearing next week Stephen's first and last sermon at his funeral. 
Like, let that sink in. But that comes from a place. That comes from a place of an inner reality, okay? Let's look at it. The five marks. Chapter 6, we'll begin actually in verse 3. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. So if you remember, right, seven, eight weeks ago when we were in Acts, there was a problem in the church, right? Some widows were being neglected. And so the apostles said, hey, listen, we need to go get some more men to help us carry out the duties. We're not going to neglect prayer and, and, and teaching of the word of God. And so they, they gathered these seven men. And here's where we meet Stephen. In verse four, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word in verse five. And they said, and they said what they said, pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. All right. So even in these two verses, verse three and verse five, we see some qualities or some marks that are carried by Stephen. But the first and the most foundational is this, that he is a man, verse three, full of the Holy Spirit. Full of the Holy Spirit, right? What does that mean, right? We're going to get there. We're, we're, we're going to talk about what it means. But, but the context in which we see Stephen in Acts chapter 6 and 7, before his death, before these councils, Jesus actually warned all of his followers that this was going to happen. In Luke chapter 12, at verse 11, it, it says this, and it'll be on the, the screen behind me. This is the words of Jesus. And when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities... Do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say. So Stephen, at some point, right, and there's a lot of mystery on this, at some point was, was following Christ, w w w knew Jesus and walked with him, heard these words, no doubt, understood these words. And here he finds himself in front of these councils, in front of these religious leaders. And what did Jesus just say? Don't be afraid. Like, sometimes I think we read the words of Jesus and we're like, yeah, yeah, don't be afraid. Stephen is in the middle of a death sentence. The indictment against him, if that is, if it is true or these men believe it's true, he's stoned to death. And Jesus says, that's where you'll find yourself, disciples. So if you follow me, you're going to find yourself in these kind of places and do not fear. Thanks, Jesus. Thanks. How? How do we not find ourselves? How does Stephen not find himself shaking? Why was it when they were looking for qualified men, why was it that they were looking for men full of the Spirit? Because of what Jesus says right after this. He says, for the Holy Spirit. You want to know how you're not afraid? You want to know how not giving defense for yourself, right? How do you not just go, wait, wait, this is a lie. This is a sham. This is, no, you are all wrong. You're the hypocrite, right? How do you not do that? Verse 12, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. So what Jesus just said is, listen, you're going to find yourself in those moments. And here is how you're going to be able to carry out my will in that exact moment. The Holy Spirit will teach you. In other words, the Holy Spirit is going to fill you and give you exactly what you need right in that moment. Now think about that, disciple. Is that how we live and operate our lives with that kind of trust? Like the words of Jesus then are true for Stephen and true for us today, right? Maybe we don't find ourselves in front of councils with men or women who want to kill us, 
But we, if we are being faithful to witness to the gospel of Jesus Christ, we find ourselves in places where we're afraid. Where we're kind of quaking, where we're unsure, where we're nervous, where our tendency, where our flesh is to defend ourselves, right? Do we submit? Do we ask the Holy Spirit in those moments to fill us? Right? Because there, there are a couple ways that the Bible lays out the filling of the Holy Spirit. Once you're saved, the Holy Spirit is in you, right? The, the Holy Spirit is in you. But the Bible paints a picture that you're constantly being filled with the Spirit by obedience to the Scriptures, right? By, by, by adhering to what God calls us to adhere to. But I think there is one practice of the filling of the Holy Spirit that we often miss, and it seems so, it seems so obvious. Jesus tells us in, in the same gospel, gospel of Luke, chapter 11, verse 12. It says this, or verse 13, sorry. If you then who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who do what? Ask. Do what? Ask. Right? So there is a level to which we are being filled by the Spirit by obeying the Scriptures, by, by adhering to, to, to the rules and regulations that God gives us in the Scriptures. But there is a moment where God says, listen, you want my presence, you want my unique presence in situations like this, here's what you need to do, ask. You need to humble yourself. This is not us drawing on past experiences or our bank wealth of knowledge and things like that. That is us falling before the God of the universe and going, I need your spirit in this moment. This is not just a general ask. This is a very specific ask. This is an ask of God. I'm walking into a situation speaking with a family member. I'm walking into this meeting. I need this decision. I'm walking into this context. Holy Spirit, I need you to speak in and through me. How many of you found yourself in those places before? Right? I hope so. And how many of you, if you honestly and earnestly ask the Lord to do it, how many of you have sensed him in those moments in powerful ways? Yeah, look at hands all around. Why? Because God is faithful. But think about how many times we've walked into situations, right? Where we have fear, where we're worried, where we're nervous, and we forget to ask. Right? Like, God help us to be full of his spirit in those moments. Not to just throw out a blanket prayer, but to be specific. God, I need you to speak in this, in X, Y, and Z. That's what I am convinced is taking place here in Stephen's life. And the Holy Spirit is working and moving in him. And I want to bring up that, that again, Luke's priority. Luke's priority is that he doesn't start with the content of, of, of Stephen's message, because his content is phenomenal. It's incredible. Luke starts with the character of this man, right? He doesn't start with his sermon and all these things and say, then he, then he died, right? But remember who Stephen was. He was a man of the spirit. He was a man of this, this, and this. He doesn't give the marks later. He gives the marks first, because I'm convinced that it's from Stephen's character that we can actually understand and receive the content of his sermon. And I would challenge us that that's how our witness in our lives should be lived. That the gospel witness of our lips and the gospel witness of our lives, our character, should be congruous. Right? They should be together. They should, be, they should not be one where it's, oh, with their lips they praise the Lord, but with their life it's another story. That is the epitome of immaturity. That is where we can actually begin to identify that the fruit and the work of the Spirit, the fullness of the Spirit, is not alive in us. 
Listen, a person who claims to be a Christian, yet their life is marked by immaturity, inconsistency, hypocrisy, continued disobedience, should seek the Spirit in such a way so that they might mature in our faith. So that the enemy cannot use those things to defame the name of Christ. What we see in Stephen is a consistency in his character and also an overflow into the content of his message. May that be true of the Parks Church. Listen, when the Spirit is alive and working and filling His people, that's what we find. The second mark is this. And, and really, these flow from the fullness of His life in the Spirit. So a life full of the Spirit, a life seeking the Spirit, are going to have these things that flow from it. Look at it back up at verse 3 again. It says, Therefore, that pick out from among you seven men, good repute, full of the Spirit and of Wisdom. Wisdom. In verse 10 of chapter 6, in standing before the council, the council cannot stand his wisdom, it says, and the power, the spirit to which he was speaking. Do you see that? He's before these men and what sticks out to them? His wisdom. Four times the word wisdom is used in the book of Acts like this. And you want to know all four times they're connected to Stephen. All four times. And so this is an interesting word. It's not just any biblical word for wisdom. It is a word that, that, that comes from a Hebrew root word meaning skill. So when people are, are, are looking at Stephen, when these councils are peering into this man's life, it's not just going, man, he's got a lot of head knowledge. I mean, he knows a lot of things about God. But there is a skill and a winsomeness to how he's speaking and how he's living that is foreign to them. That is wisdom. Proverbs 2, 6. This is not something that Stephen has manufactured. This is something given to him because we know this. For the Lord gives wisdom. The Lord gives wisdom. Out of his mouth comes knowledge. So this is something that Stephen has received from God and has also received because he has been with Jesus. That's where wisdom comes from. And the foundation of wisdom, right? This idea of even wisdom being like skillful living comes from the basis of, of Proverbs 1-7. That the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Right? Like that's the beginning, that's the bedrock of wise living for a disciple. And we see it embodied in Stephen. So question for us, how do we live skillfully for the glory of God? Right? How, how do we live wisely for the glory of God? I love the word skillfully because you think about it and it's not just some like we do it really well or we do it with ease, but we do it differently. We do it differently than the culture in the world would say handle these things. Right? So think about our relationships. Think about our finances, our marriages, how, how we raise our kids, how we interact with one another in the church. There has got to be a difference. There has got to be a skillfulness that comes from understanding who God is and what he's called us to. That's wisdom. And Paul, in 1 Corinthians 1, he says this. He says, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, meaning those who are believers, disciples, those who are called, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. So what is the epitome of the wisdom of God? What is the actual embodiment of God's will and God's power and God's wisdom? Jesus Jesus is the wisdom of God personified. So here's what we do. We look to Jesus. We look at his life. We understand the gospel. 
that one of the ways in which we, church, collectively, as disciples, are going to live wisely in this world is that we become very fluent in speaking gospel. Not, not, not the gospel, right? Even though that, that is important. But we speak gospel, which means everything we do, every person we see, every situation we face, whether we're in praxis groups or we're at the office or we're in our house, it is connected and we see how the gospel radically changes everything. Right? If we're sitting on an airplane ride, whether we're sitting on a bus or in a car with someone else, and they begin to bring up something, and we say, oh, wait a minute, the gospel, the gospel connects to this. Listen, that is God's wisdom. Because the gospel of Jesus Christ is God's wisdom for us. We must understand the gospel and work it down into every area of our life. Is what Paul calls the wisdom of the cross. That's all we have. We must grow in wisdom and we will as we grow in understanding the gospel of Jesus Christ and obedience to it. How the gospel answers, how the gospel informs, how the gospel directs us in absolutely everything. That's wisdom. Right? So even as you're meeting with people, again, back in your practice groups or, or just over coffee, that what you're reaching for, what you're going for is not personal experience. It's not say, hey, here, here's my guidance. It's the gospel. That the first place we would turn in our fluency is to the gospel of Jesus Christ. To his grace, to his mercy, to his love, to his sacrifice. That informs how we live. You want to live skillfully? Understand the gospel and how it influences everything in our lives. The third mark in Stephen is this. Is faith. Is faith. Verse 5. And this may, may seem obvious. It says, they chose Stephen, a man full of faith. And this is, this is very clearly talking about his faith in God. Not faith in himself, not faith in his effort, not faith in, 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 in his intellect. It is about faith in God. And we will see in chapter 7, we will see in his sermon, in his discourse, if you will, that his faith was in a covenant-keeping God who redeems and saves through Jesus Christ alone. That is where his inner confidence comes from. That is where his ability to stand amongst all of these wolves comes from. It comes from his unshakable faith in Jesus Christ. And we go, well, that's obvious. You want to know what really tests our faith? To find out if it's, it's the real deal or it's not? To find out if it's, it's, it's really strong or weak? You know, what, you know what tests that? Trials. Hardships. Suffering. Persecution. Like that, that's what pulls the tide back to say, listen, you have a strong faith or you have a weak faith. Here Stephen is standing about to die. And one of the qualities that Luke points out, even in this moment, he was full of faith. And maybe for Stephen, I mean, it says at the beginning here in verse 8, that he was full of, full of grace and truth, doing signs and miracles. I mean, maybe even this, like easy to go, man, what a man of faith. Like you see all these incredible things happening that God's doing and Stephen's part of it. Man, woo, woo. But the same faith... And the same God was with him doing the miracles and the signs and wonders as it was when he was standing alone in the middle of the council about to die. Like, God, God, give me that kind of faith. I think about my life and, and how much I waver at the silliest things. See, this is not pointing to Stephen. This faith is not talking about something that Stephen has conjured. This is talking about the object. 
It's talking about Jesus, that he was full of the spirit. He was full of faith in Christ. Like, I'm weak, but my object is perfectly strong. I'm frail. I'm unfaithful, but the object of my faith is not. That's what this is pointing to. That's what it says. The heart of a disciple is someone who understands the object of their faith in both the good and in the suffering. Both in the highlands, right? At the height and in the valley. But so often the object of, excuse me, my faith is something that's found within me. Security, intellect, goodness, morality, giftedness, position, relationships, kids. That's what a lot of us put our faith in. Until what? Until something gives way. Until they reveal that they can never provide what we need them to provide and they have no power to help us in the time of need. Stephen, a man full of faith. Fourth, not just full of faith, but he was full of power. Verse 8, and Stephen, full of grace, which we're going to get to, and power. Power. We love the word power in America. It's not the same. What Luke is talking about here is an authority and a power that comes from an outside source that is being demonstrated in the life of a disciple. A power to submit his life a power to walk in in a presence of God that is unique. Paul, uh, in 1 Corinthians, he's dealing with a church that's kind of dysfunctional, right? If you ever read Corinthian letters, you know it's super dysfunctional. And he says this in, in 1 Corinthians 4. Look at this. He says, but I will come to you soon, if the Lord wills, and I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. Like, so these people trying to deceive the church, he's going, listen, I'm not going to come there and just hear about these arrogant people in their speech. I want to come and see by what power and authority they're making these claims. Because there's one power and there's one authority and his name is Jesus. And if they're not preaching Jesus, they're doing it on another power and another authority. So I'm going to find out what power. Like church, what power are we operating in? And listen, I'm not talking about our numbers. I'm not talking about our leadership. I'm not talking about our physical buildings or structures. I'm talking about the real power of our church. Where does it come? What is the source? There is one source. That is through Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit. That is our source of power. We have nothing else apart from him, John 15. It's impossible apart from him. And apart from the power that he works in and through a people. And Stephen embodied that kind of power. But hold on. There's something that always precedes power biblically. The power of God. And here's what precedes it. The presence of God. Look all over the pages of your scripture where God encounters and moves a people in power. There's something that precedes it every time. And that is people being in the presence of God. The Mount of Transfiguration. Peter, James, and John go up with Jesus. And Jesus says, I want you to be with me before any power is displayed. Be with me. The presence of God, a people who want to be empowered by the Holy Spirit to display the power of God to a community must be with Jesus first. And if not, let me tell you, let me warn us, 
that that power is actually very damaging and detrimental. We don't know how to handle it unless we're in the presence of God. Oh, oh, we know what to do with it. Here's what we do with it. We squander it on ourselves rather than stewarding it for our community and those who don't know Jesus. You see, when we're with Jesus, like Stephen was with Jesus, he knew what to do with the power. And it wasn't to condemn those. It wasn't to holler at those groups of men who were falsely indicting him. Oh, no. It was to do the same thing his master Jesus did. And this is the last mark. It was to display grace. Verse 8. And Stephen, full of grace. Full of grace? You see, Stephen walked the way Jesus walked. The only other person to be described like this is Jesus himself in John chapter 1, verse 14. That says that Jesus was full of grace and truth. Like Stephen is such a vivid picture and pointer to Christ. Even so much so that Jesus, some of his final words as he, he was dying. Innocently, right? Very similar situation in terms of like, he's innocent. He has not done anything that these rulers would, 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 would accuse him of. And what did Jesus, looking over the people, looking over the guards who nailed his hands, what did he say to them in some of his final words? Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. Grace. Stephen, after his sermon, after his discourse, look at this in Acts chapter 7, verse 60. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And then he died. What? Like, I don't know about you, but I'm there in the middle. Maybe, maybe you give a great discourse. Maybe you great witness to the gospel amazingly. But in the last moment where stones are being hurled at me, I don't know if that's my prayer. I think my prayer would be something like, rescue me, right? S save me, oh God, right? Or, or, or be with my wife and kids, you know, like something like that. Where was Stephen's mind? Where was Stephen's mind because of where his heart was that came out of his lips? Lord, Give them grace. Grace. Why? Because he knew Jesus. Because he was a man full of the Spirit. A normal guy. Full of the Spirit. Listen, apart from the grace of Jesus in his own life, he very well could have been one holding a stone. But instead he was there professing Christ in the middle. A normal guy full of the Holy Spirit in wisdom and faith and power in grace. And then to close, I want to look at verse 15. In gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Kind of a weird verse. Right? That's why I love preaching through the Bible. Luke doesn't just superficially add this. 
He doesn't add this because it's just a cool moment where his face was glowing. He's like, everybody needs to know. What's the indictment against Stephen? Right? They level that he is, he's blaspheming God. That he's going against Moses and the law of God. Well, let's back up to Moses. Exodus 34. Where Moses says, God, I want to see you. And God's like, that'll kill you. Like nobody can handle that. The weight, nothing. And so God says, oh, Moses, I'm going to hide you in the cleft of the rock and I'm going to cover you. And you're going to get to see, literally the translation is my afterburn. You're going to just get to see a glimpse of me. You're going to see just, just, just a small fraction of my afterglow. And you remember, and it happens, and God does it exactly this. And what happens to Moses' face in Exodus 34? It radiates, it glows like an angel. It glows so much that they've got to veil his face before he goes before people. Stephen's face glowing like that of an angel. They're going, you're against Moses. He's the one who looks most like Moses in this scene. They're the ones going against Moses. They're the ones, they're the ones condemning the law. They're the ones blaspheming God by denying the Messiah. And Stephen stands there in wisdom and power and faith and grace and displays even in his body, even in his physical appearance, the likeness of God. Listen, those who live close to God will display the presence of God even physically, even in our dispositions. Listen, I'm not saying we walk around with a glow of an angel face, right? Some of you do. I like you, but, um, but it's talking about our dispositions, how we live literally as we abide in Christ. All right, so let's close. How do we live like this? How do we live as people, as disciples, where our lives embody these things? Right? Where, where we would embody the power of God, the, the fullness of his Holy Spirit, grace and, and, and wisdom. Listen, it is impossible in of ourselves, church. Right? So listen, if you're not a Christian here, I got some good news and bad news. One, I'm glad that you're here. Maybe you're searching for, you know, a virtuous life or a good life. If you've been like me, like in that search, you've found it a, a search of futility. You've found it, found it a search that, that's very frustrating because you keep failing at the very things you're trying to achieve, right? See, that's the bad news. We can't achieve. We can't earn what we long for in a relationship with God. We can't earn that. Here's the good news. That there is a way. Not to earn it, but to receive it. That is through Christ alone. That's through Jesus, the one whom Stephen is pursuing and going after, abiding in. It is through faith in Jesus Christ alone that we find our hope, that we find the virtues and the good life that we are searching for. It's by putting our trust in Christ and admitting we can't save ourselves. So listen, if you're not a Christ follower, I pray that you would make that confession this morning that you can't save yourself. Jesus, I trust you as the only way of salvation to have right relationship with God. I pray that you confess that. That's the gospel. All right. Believer. Same answer. 
Same answer. Paul says in Galatians 2.20, just as you entered the faith is how you mature in the faith. Is that daily we are working into our hearts and our lives the gospel of Jesus Christ. And what we will find is the fullness of the Holy Spirit begins to well up in us over and over and over again. That it's the Holy Spirit that displaces those things in Kyle's life that are keeping me from the intimacy and affections that I'm to have for my father. And he rids me of those and replaces it with himself. I mean, think about this in Hebrews 12. We've got this verse and this is where we'll end. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings to us so closely. Like, I, did any, does anybody else feel that? Like, it clings to me. It weighs me down. And let us run with endurance, church. The race that is set before us, Stephen had a race set before him. You have a race set before him. We as a church have a race set before us. We're praying for endurance. How do we get endurance? How do I get endurance in my family, in my marriage, in this church, in in my work, in my vocation? How do I get endurance? Here it is, verse 2. Looking to Jesus. Fixing our eyes and our lives and our church solely upon Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, the wisdom of God, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. That is our only hope, disciple. That is your only hope, Christ follower. Non-believer, that is your only hope. That we behold him that we look to him. Right? We, even in something as, as simple as like the reading plan. We didn't put a reading plan together just because we should do that, right? Like that's the church box check. You know, okay, reading plan, we got it. No, we do that because we communally want to be abiding in the scriptures to point us and to show us who Jesus is so that we might look to him accurately. Not some character, not some McKinney, Texas version of who Jesus is, but who the word of God says he is. That we might attend praxis groups and Bible studies and, and gather together in community and large groups and small groups and prayer so that we might behold Jesus and that as we abide in Jesus, it shifts our affections and fills us more and more with him and less and less of us. Listen, that is, that is one of the primary reasons we in fact even do communion like this is that it's an opportunity and a rhythm and a habit that shapes us and forms us and reminds us of who Jesus is and that everything centers on him and not us. His broken body and shed blood for you and me. And so church, we're going to take communion together as a way of shaping and forming and ridding us of certain things and practices to fill us with the spirit of God. So let me pray for us hosts. You can get ready. Father, I pray even as we make the journey to these tables and grab the elements in our hands. Father, that your spirit might be working, convicting, encouraging, shaping, saving even in this room this morning. God, I pray we would not flippantly and casually approach these tables, but we would do it by vividly focusing on your son, Jesus. That we'd not casually partake drinking upon ourselves wrath, your word says but we would take it with a reverence and an awe of our Savior, Jesus. So Holy Spirit, in these next 
few moments moving forward together capture our hearts, stir our affections for more of you, for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Our hosts are going to help us.